9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. In fact, a special episode where we're uh, celebrating the fact that Deep State Radio has been doing its Deep State Radio thing now for four years, um, uh, which is kind of remarkable. And the group that we've got assembled here has actually been having these conversations for almost seven years, Um, uh, although we remain entirely unchanged thanks to the touch-up feature on Zoom. Um, uh, Anyway, we are uh, uh, glad to have our, our core group, our best friends here within the deep state, uh, starting with, of course, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute, who is in Washington, D.C. for a few minutes. Yes, but only for a couple more days. I'm decamping home to California to for the last, uh, there's got to be an upside to the pandemic, right? I get to work from California for two months before we reopen the building. Well, that sounds like an upside. And then, of course, we have Rosa Brooks in Alexandria, Virginia. I can tell because her duck rabbit is over her shoulder in the Zoom. And that's the sign that uh, there she goes, that she's in Alexandria. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well, David. It's good to be here. I can't believe we've all gotten so old. Not all of us. We, we have our kind of portrait of Dorian Gray, who's currently in Utah, David Sanger of the New York Times, uh, who's aging, aging for all of us. Uh, hi, David. How are you doing? Jeez, with an invitation like that, I'm doing just great. I'm actually out here looking around for um, Rose's deep silos. And certainly, there's got to be there's got to be something nuclear around here where Rose's dug deep underground. What are you doing in Utah, David? I told hiking you. Other than just, that, that's... just oh, other than that, I've been hiking yeah. in Brian and Zeiss and all that. Oh, yeah. I love Bryce Canyon. It's and then I end amazing places. It's great. And then I, I I I end up I end up in California just to make sure that the state can absorb the return <laughs> of Corey uh, properly, and that there are like Fourth of July parades in her honor. You know, Sonoma, California, my hometown, has a fabulous rinky-dink 4th of July parade. Okay, well, there you go. Um, And uh, let me add that we also are joined, I think, back in Washington, since it looks like a stately loose manner behind him, uh, by uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, who I know has been bopping up and down the eastern seaboard sampling lobster and every uh, lobster uh, 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 Hot up and down the coast. How are you doing, Ed? I'm doing good. Yes, I was um, doing a, a lunch with the FT, an interview over an, in a lobster shack with Heather Cox Richardson, who's been on your podcast. She's great. She's wonderful. She's a real delight. Um, and it was. Uh, Although I happen to know from inside source, she doesn't like lobster. Yeah, she did. She had haddock. I was shocked. We were in a lobster shack, and she ordered haddock. Well, that's what a real Mainer will do. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it's good to have all of you here. I thought, you know, 
Um, we could we could talk about almost anything, but you know we're four years into Deep State Radio, and I was thinking back to when we started Deep State Radio. Um, it, you know, it was uh, the early days of the Trump administration, and when we started having these conversations, it was kind of actually sort of the beginning of the second term of the Obama administration. And when we start, though, you know, at that point, the idea that Trump would be president was ludicrous. And by the time Trump was president, the idea that, you know, we would go through what we've gone through in the past couple of years is 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 ludicrous. Or the idea even that Joe Biden would be back seemed to be kind of surprising. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought, hmm, I wonder where we'll be four years from now. Um uh, <laughs> Uh, based on based on all this accumulated experience that we've got, so you know, make some bold predictions, Corey. Oh, where we where we will be four years from now? Um, so I really liked a piece Henry Farrell wrote in Foreign Policy about the Biden administration using democracy promotion abroad in order to foster the strengthening of democracy at home. And while I don't agree with all of his argument, it made me really pause and think um, about uh, the solidity of democracy in America, because I think all of us breathed a huge sigh of relief when President Trump wasn't reelected. But the hard grinding work of strengthening institutions and norms uh, is a continuing challenge, I think, for us. So my bold prediction is that four years from now, Trump will not again be president. Um, and uh, my Republican Party will begin to find its moorings on the theory that it takes three election cycles for a party to realize it has a failing um, platform. Yeah, so I that's one. That's, that's good. And that's why you've earned the, uh, uh, the tiara of optimism. Uh, I don't know how we can be more optimistic than that, but I'll give Rosa a chance. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm my, here's my fear. You know, my my fear is that uh, in 2024, Trump will run again and that he will win, uh, not by getting most votes, but by a combination of voter suppression of voters more likely to vote Democratic and funny business, you know, pre-cooking the books with uh, state level officials in Republican-leaning states. We saw him try to do that, both of those things, obviously, in the 2020 election, and he didn't succeed. Um, but I worry a little bit that we all have taken our eyes off the ball, you know, that we sort of said, oh, good, you know, he didn't succeed. And and we're kind of congratulating ourselves on a return to normal with, with Joe Biden. My, my fear is, though, that while we're all, you know, giving each other high fives, uh, that the Trump wing of the GOP, which unfortunately is now the, the, the dominant wing of the GOP, uh, and is busily preparing for 2024 mischief and that the, the Democrats are not equally preparing because we're busy high-fiving each other. Um, so that's my fear, is that 2024 will be back to 
either Trump himself or a Trump-esque Republican candidate uh, winning, uh, and that the Liz Cheney wing of the Republican Party will will end up getting getting thoroughly trounced. Well, there's two completely incompatible views. Um, (laughs) But they're totally compatible with our pre-existing reputations as holders, respectively, the PR of optimism. Right. But Corey also made a prediction. You just expressed a fear. David, you can go in either direction. Sure. So um, what I find interesting is that when you talk to American allies, um, they want to believe Corey, but in their heart of hearts, they believe Rosa. So I just did the 10-day um, you know, marathon of the G7 and the NATO meeting uh, and the European uh, Commission meeting and then the Putin summit. Yeah, uh, since those of us, some of us saw your hotel room in, in Geneva, and we know that as a New York Times fancy guy, you were carried around in a sedan chair for the entire absolutely. 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. I, wish I, could, I wish I could take, uh, I wish I could take credit for that, but... Uh, that 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 is basically the the room in the press hotel that I got assigned to, but I didn't turn it down. Uh, it, it was it was quite lovely with a nice view of Lake Geneva. Um, what struck me was that so many allies were embracing um, uh, Biden, but then asking us on the side, "Do you think he's a historical blip between Trump?" And someone like Trump, whether it was a Nikki Haley character or a Mike Pompeo, or in other words, that they would be thrown back into the chaos that they saw and what kind of hedging strategies they might pursue to prevent that. And then even the Iranians, in the course of this negotiation to restore the 2015 Iran deal, what have they been seeking from Biden? The one thing he can't give them a guarantee that no future president's going to do what Trump did and pull out of the deal. So, you know, I think that the the allies and American adversaries um, are uh, wondering uh, the same thing that we're in this debate in uh, here, that we're debating here, and suspect that um, they have to prepare for the possibility that Rosa is right. And uh, that alone, I think, is going to present some difficulties for for Biden. That said, I think the whole Biden approach of following autocracy versus democracy is a fascinating line of argument that I suspect, as Corey uh, suggested, is intended partly to build up the United States at home, but also runs the risk of talking us into the Cold War that he keeps saying uh, and said at the press conference uh, after the Putin meeting uh, that isn't happening. And and my sense of it is that if it's not the old Cold War, it's something that feels a lot like a Cold War, and that that may be the international context in which you're mm-hmm. running that next election. What do you think, Ed? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the Europeans that you talk to, um, David, and, and that I talk to, you know, they're not getting their views from their own analysis. They're sort of reading people like you, and they're reading what we're saying here about the condition. Boy, of are they in trouble? Um, yeah, they're in trouble. I mean, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not subscribing to Newsmax. Um, 
And, you know, they didn't forecast Trump in the first place. Very few people did. So I, I, that's not, nothing against them. I, I think they're, they're listening to what Americans are saying about America. Um, and, you know, worrying, uh, I think quite rightly, that the real democracy versus autocracy battle is taking place inside America um, rather than globally. And I, I think it was quite notable that this summit of democracy that was, you know, originally penciled in for April is now going to happen sometime in 2022 when we don't yet have a venue or, or a date specified, I don't think. Um, so that's been not put off the agenda, but kind of pushed back, downgraded a little bit after Biden's conversations with his European counterparts. And I think they're right. And therefore I do tilt um, rather than pivot a little bit towards Rosa. Um, uh, that I think the uh, likelihood of contested election in 2024, one or other chambers of Congress having returned to the Republicans in 2022 is high. And the reason I think that is not just because the GOP has, you know, become even more authoritarian in the, uh, since January the 6th, but, but also because there has been no consequence for that. When there is no consequence for trying something um, as lethal, reckless, and um, um, dangerous to, to a, a democratic republic as what was tried on January the 6th, um, results in no consequences, um, except for some of the perpetrators, a few of whom might end up in jail and be labeled. 400 people have already been arrested. Those are substantial sure. consequences. I think you're underestimating the extent to which the FBI actually getting serious about tracking down um, right-wing agitators can make a difference in four years. You're, you're, you're right. People have been arrested and there will be trials and some will end up in jail, deservedly. Um, but the, the consequences for the people, um, the head of the snake, if, if you like, for the people who inspired, organized, and pushed this to happen, Political are so conflict. far zero. And they're so far zero. Um, so, you know, I think unless we see consequences to Trump and many people around him, this party is going to try it again. And it, it might well be in a better position, given all the changes to state law that we're seeing, uh, election laws that we're seeing, to uh, and with probable control of the House by 2024, that they might well have a better chance um, of a more orchestrated attempt to change the Electoral College result next time. I think that's a legitimate fear, notwithstanding, Corey, your point that there are, there are going to be jailings. People will end up being labeled political prisoners by Putin, no doubt, for being jailed for their role in January the 6th. But I don't think the sort of electoral playing field is going to tilt more favorably towards fair and neutral sort of conditions between now and 2024. Corey, presented with this dichotomy, and I, I think, by the way, you know, I did a, a story on Biden's trip, too, actually, and called a bunch of people and got the exact same reaction that David was getting, which was, you know, which is the blip and which is the trend? You know, is you know, is it by is Biden the blip and and Trump is the trend, or is Trump the blip and Biden the trend? How do you how do you how do you make the case um, to yourself that 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 Biden is the trend? Uh, 
so the fact that President Trump's agitation over the Senate races um, in Georgia was consequential for delivering the Senate to the Democrats. Um, and the fact that um, many Republican candidates outpaced the president's uh, electoral margins by a substantial amount, and they weren't people uh, who were advocates of the president's views. So I do think, I mean, it, it is a fight, but I think the canary in the coal mine will be whether that tent will know in 2022 uh, that, that whether um, Liz Cheney is a saber-toothed tiger in a tar pit lashing out against evolution that has moved beyond her, or whether the townhouse Republicans who voted for impeachment can get reelected. Because if they get reelected, I think it will show that you can stand for principles and against authoritarian behavior and be rewarded for it. I do think the terrain of 2022 is going to advantage Republicans taking the House, but uh, could, you could see increased control, Democratic control of the Senate as well. Um, so, so I don't think, I'm not as dispirited as any of my three and maybe four of my colleagues on this call. Uh, I also think that um, what that President Biden's actually attempting a really interesting political strategy, which is to say, I am bipartisan because rank and file Republicans agree with my policies, although re elected Republican officials don't. And if he can actually pull off that schism, that will, as Ed, to use Ed's metaphor, cut the head off the snake. And on things like um, COVID relief, those are wildly popular with Republican voters, as even Republican elected officials admit. So Biden's strategy of being boring and pushing forward by policies that are bipartisan and popular, even if not with elected Republicans, strikes me as both interesting and likely to be successful. So that's how I explain it to myself, David. No, that's a good explanation. And I would say, um, you know, Rosa, one of the things that strikes me here is I'm all for cutting that off the snake and, you know, actually cutting that off the snake and stomping on it and flushing it down the toilet and, you know, doing whatever we can to these guys, throwing them in jail um, uh, and, and real accountability. But I have to say, um, as I think Ed intimated a moment ago, you know, that what there is, you know, if, the, if, 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 if Trump or some of his people run afoul of the law in the next two to three years, there is a possibility of a backlash. And the best way to cut off the head off the snake is what Corey is talking about, which is making it look like being a Trump Republican is a losing proposition. Because frankly, all of these people are self-interested and you're really trying to influence the ones who aren't in likely to go to jail. And, um, you know, if Biden can go and put out a bunch of popular policies, um, that might be the best way to do it. So I guess what I'm asking is, can you in your own mind make the case that Corey is right? Sure. Yeah. No, I, and, and I, th I think 
none of this is foreordained, I, I think. Um, I think we're at a sort of moment where it could go either way. And since I'm usually a pessimist, I, I tend to assume it'll probably go the wrong way. And Corey's an optimist and assumes it'll probably go the right way. But but what what happens in the next couple of years, obviously, will have a powerful impact on which direction things swing in. So, yeah, I mean, what is right now the rational actor perspective, I think, if 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 for Republicans not likely to be indicted is to say, let's veer towards Liz Cheney, let's veer towards normalcy, let's veer towards, hey, guess what, everybody, we're right wing, we're conservative, but we're not we're not bananas. You know, we're going to play by the rules and we think that the rules are important here. Um, and uh, that means that sometimes we'll be in power, sometimes we'll be out of power. Um, but it's in our interest to seek compromise with Democrats on infrastructure issues, uh, on, on COVID relief issues and so on. Um, and we're going to hope that a rising tide lifts all boats and the Trump people just kind of go away. And, and that could happen. You know, I think the trouble is that that the Republicans, the, the more extreme Trumpy wing of the Republican Party, there's also a rational actor perspective there that says, yeah, you know, if 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 Democratic if if current demographic trends continue, we are just doomed. But we might be able to get enough uh, restrictive rules in place uh, that will limit voting and suppress turnout that is pro-democratic. We might be able to get um, enough friendly state-level officials, voting officials on our side that we can we can successfully essentially steal an election next time around while claiming that we're not stealing it, you know, that we might just be able to rig the system enough that the various demographic trends um, cannot alter the outcome because we will have rigged the system. And they're going, I think that group is, they're going to go all in on that. Um, I don't know whether they will succeed, you know, and it partly depends on how successful, how vigilant all the rest of us are. Um, about precisely what what that effort is likely to be, you know that that last time, for instance, in, in 2020 election, they were kind of stuck with the state level election officials who'd been there for several years. Um, you know, some of whom were Trumpies, most of whom were not. Uh, they're going to make a concerted effort, the Trump wing of the GOP, to get rid of the people who are not Trumpies and replace them with people who are. I don't know whether they'll succeed in doing that. Um, you know, if, and they may not be able to. You know, and, and I do think that they're in a lot of places, not all places, but the sort of state level and local level politics are, are not as crazy as the national level politics, although in a few places it's the opposite, actually. Um, but but mostly I think the, the sort of local level are not quite as deranged as the national level. So I, I just don't know. I mean, I, I could completely imagine a world in which Corey is right, in which the sort of career career party officials prevail um, the state level career folks who have a vested interest in the integrity of the system prevail, uh, and the Trumpies don't quite make it and gradually fade away in the next decade. Um, so I, and I hope that's the case, but I, but I think that, you know, I mean, this is very similar to everything we were saying, you know, a year ago today, which is that all of this depends on what all the rest of us do. And, and I do worry, I mean, going back to what I said earlier, I do worry about, I do worry that the vigilance on the on the non-crazy people side has been relaxed, that we've been sort of Biden, Biden's victory lulled us into a false sense of, oh, OK, everything's all right now. And I think that's very dangerous. I think we have to absolutely let go of that 
uh, and we have to be we have to stay in a in a state of some you know a state of emergency and sort of recognize that this threat has not gone away, um, and if we just ignore it, it will be stronger. Uh, and and it, whereas if we act like it's I mean and, and well actually you know this this is a, a a tactical disagreement I think within the anti-Trump wing of the Republican Party and the and the Democratic Party, there's a tactical disagreement now, as there was in the run up to the last election, over whether it we should be running around saying, hey, the sky could fall any second, or whether we should be running around telling everybody that it's fine. You know, and I tend to be more in the let's run around and say the sky could fall camp. Um, because I think that if you don't do that, people will not be motivated to do what is needed to do to prevent a Trump retakeover. Um, the people who are in the no, no, let's tell everybody is fine camp say, oh, no, if you tell people the sky is falling, then they just become demoralized and they don't even bother to do anything because they think it's hopeless. And, you know, I can't I don't know how, you know, I obviously, as I said, I'm in the sky is falling camp. Um, and I think saying that is part of what we need to do to make sure that Corey's version of the future comes true and not mine. But uh, I understand the contrary perspective as well. Okay, so with a remaining 15 or so minutes, um, I, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Uh, David, you were just traveling around the world and meeting with people, and you were talking about how the Iranians, uh, you know, are trying to deal tactically with this question of does uh, Trump come back in this period of time? And, you know, uh, you know, all of them are looking ahead four years. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about it, but when we started having these conversations, say six, seven years ago, if we had said, you know, and if I had said to everybody six, seven years from now, how's the world going to be different? Probably everybody would have said, well, China will have more, be more important. They would have been right. Um, uh, they probably would have said Russia will continue to be a nuisance. Um, they they would have been right. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, they might have said uh, India will be more important. Um, I think they'd be wrong in that regard. India, I think, is faltered demo democratically and for a number of other reasons. Um, and they might have said, you know, try as Barack Obama wants, you know, wanted to to pivot to Asia. Um, the, the Middle East always comes and gets us and it will always be central. And I think they would have been wrong because I think the Middle East is, is rapidly becoming much less important. As you look out four years ahead, David, what, what, you know, what, what are one or two of the big changes from the status quo that you think we might expect? Well, you know, I hinted at one of them in the answer before when I said that I thought it was it was interesting but risky for Biden to go pursue um, this concept of autocracy versus democracy. I think he's got the right theme. I think he's got the theme that puts America on the right side of, of uh, the argument. But I think what we sort of didn't see coming, and I sort of dismissed myself, was the possibility that Russia and China coming at these issues from completely different places, Russia from a fundamental position of weakness, China from a fundamental position of strength, will find common ground in undercutting the United States around the world. Do I think this is going to make them great friends and allies? No, I don't think they're capable of that. Do I think that they will find some temporary ways, and we've already seen it in the cyber realm, where they have some common interests in 
driving the United States uh, either to turn against itself, as the Russians have been doing by amplifying some of our own internal divisions, or uh, by undercutting our power or making us doubt our own systems, as happened in solar winds and so forth. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more than that of that. Uh, at uh, as we discussed last week, David, um, uh, what made this um, meeting with Putin different was it was the first one in which we saw cyber come up sort of on equal par with nuclear issues. And what did that mean? It meant that Biden recognized that we have a, sen- we have a set of vulnerabilities, both in our networked world, but also in the way our democracy is wired, that makes it fairly easy for our adversaries to come after us. And I think the theme of the next four years is going to be an acceleration of that despite anything that he might or might not have gotten out of Putin in the course of, of the discussion last Thursday. Well, I'm sure Rosa will find that comfortingly pessimistic. <laughs> Ed, what, what, in terms of the shifting... That's my goal here is to make Rosa happy or to find her her next silo to go live in out, out here in Utah. Yeah, well, don't, don't you know, <laughs> keep, keep up the good work. Uh, uh, but Ed, in terms of the uh, sort of geopolitical plate tectonics, what, what kind of shifts do you see that might, we might not expect right now? Um, look, I mean, I have to say, going back to the beginning, the fact that this is four years of deep state radio and several more um, of you podcasting with, with, with us um, as your guests, um, that America is in a considerably better position than I would have predicted four years ago, uh, you know, and I think I think you know it's, it should be said that regardless of whether Biden is exactly framing, you know, it's a movable feast right now, but exactly framing this, you know, as optimally as he could, and approaching diplomacy as as well as might be hoped. Regardless of that, the position that we're in today is much much less bad than I might have feared a year ago or four years ago and I know that's really worth underlining and as I say I wasn't on the trip that David um, accompanied Biden on last week but I think that trip went you know again modest expectations were set um, but he way uh, which was clever and, and Biden's sort of shown a habit of being able to do that quite well as we saw with the vaccines that they were cleared quite comfortably and the Europeans heard what they wanted to hear. And he sort of set, I think, um, the springboard for more dynamic action. What I would uh, like to see, and I know there's a debate going on within and around the um, administration about this, is some quite sort of far-reaching, long-term strategic um, um, attempts to not, bring Russia into the Western camp, that's impossible. Not to democratize Russia, that's a complete shimmer whilst Putin is in charge. Um, But to make it a bit more equidistant between China and the West, to play on the wedge potential of Russia's fear of a rapidly encroaching China through Central Asia, through the near abroad, of Russia really screwing, of China really screwing Russia on the gas deals that Russia is selling to China and are being treated 
increasingly as a sort of afterthought or as a little brother by, by China. And I think that, you know, other countries um, uh, like India, like Japan, like France, um, are attempting to move closer to Russia. There's a lot of stuff going on, not very well covered here, but there's a lot of overtures going on to Moscow um, from places like Delhi and Paris um, that uh, seek to build on these potential wedges between China and Russia. Now, this isn't incompatible with the democracy versus autocracy argument, but clearly democracy versus autocracy cannot be the overriding sole sort of geostrategic principle of the Biden administration if trying to loosen Russia from China's embrace is, is um, one of its aims, as it should be one of its aims. Um, and I think that the way Biden interacted with Putin on Wednesday in Geneva last week um, could, if things go well, these you know, summits are never be all and end all, they're episodic, but could, by stroking Putin's ego a little bit whilst reading him the riot act in private, um, but in public, you know, saying you're a worthy adversary and you're a great power, etc., could uh, um, assuage Russia's paranoia to the degree that India, Japan, France and others can work harder on prizing Russia from China's embrace. That, to me, should be an overriding goal. Uh, well, not an overriding. It should be a goal of the Biden administration. And I think there are, there are many in the Biden administration who want it to be. Um, so that, that would be the sort of Kissingerian, Brzezinski-esque geostrategic, um, one of the geostrategic aims I would like to see coming from the Biden administration. And in my more optimistic moments, expect to see. And that does involve not downplaying, but you know, giving equal weight between that, between the realist strand of thinking and the more um, um, idealist democracy versus autocracy stuff that, um, that people like Blinken are probably are pushing, are pushing um, harder. Corey? I think the biggest geopolitical shift of the next four years will be a recognition that China has stalled and that in fact, the democracy versus autocracy framing uh, will have bold new evidence that democracy, that Frank Fukuyama was right um, in his book about liberal free societies being the ultimate um, stage of human governance and societal organization. That four years ago, the Chinese stopped the kind of economic policies that were fueling its rise. Uh, their crackdowns in Hong Kong and Xinjiang and elsewhere, the building of the surveillance state, they have managed to activate the antibodies against their continued rise just as they hit the middle income trap and have to try and navigate their economy from manufacturing through uh, to be a service economy and to be, uh, to be a continued preferred partner of the West. I think four years from now, even Wall Street will have recognized that they're going to lose money on this bet or they will be legislated against the exposure because the splinter net's coming and 
And it's going to be one more demonstration uh, that free societies are bad at having it right, but great at getting it right. And authoritarians, for all of their sleek um, uh, successes, have inherent uh, difficulties that they cannot get past. And we're seeing it with Xi Jinping strangling the success of China. More optimism there, Rosa. <laughs> Can you handle it? Um, you know. I know I'm, I'm, that's depressed me oh, so much. Way, that China may actually be more likely to, uh, for us to have to fight a war against. Oh, okay. Thank you. Oh, that's- all right. Well, that's, that's much better. Thank you, Corey. I feel better now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, this is like the old classic problem. Are we better with a wealthy rising China or a stalling China? Yeah. And my guess is we're better with a wealthy rising China. I agree. I think that's right. Um, we want, we want, we want the Chinese to feel less desperation and more complacency. Uh-huh. Uh, because desperation makes people scary and complacency makes them lazy and unscary. Um, no, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think the likely trend of the next four years is not going to be a, a huge dramatic thing. It's going to be a continuation of pre-existing trends. Uh, and in particular, it's going to be a, a continuation of the sort of slow decline of relative U.S. power in the world. Um, and again, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. I mean, I mean, if we can manage it well, um, you know, it may result in the U.S. being less overstretched, um, less a global target for everybody who's unhappy with anything in the way the global system is working or not working. Um, you know, if we manage it badly, uh, you know, we will become the desperate and frantic and dangerous nation. And I don't think that would be a good thing for for either us or for the world. But no, I, I think that I think that from our perspective, that, that's going to be the big challenge is that is that for better or for worse, US influence and power globally is going to continue to decline. And we have to find a way to sort of hand manage that in a way in, in a way that is that is graceful and not self-destructive. Interesting. You know, I think if I'm if I look back on the past six years, um, You know, the the rise of Trump was unthinkable. The damage Trump did was unthinkable. The the six hundred thousand lives lost to COVID, which are probably really nine hundred thousand lives, thirty two million people infected by COVID. Hard to imagine eighteen months ago, much less six years ago, um, and yet there is a good degree of optimism right now. We've been able to recover from a lot of those things. And when you look at most of U.S. history, you know, we started out divided for 100 years over slavery, had a civil war, the bloodiest war the world had ever known, got stronger after that. Two world wars got stronger after them. Great Depression got stronger after that. I, you know, I, I'm going to surprise you guys and, and maybe mostly Corey by saying, tend to be in her camp. Um, I tend to I tend to be um, optimistic. Um, I fear everything that Rosa fears, um, but uh, you know I I believe in you know that Churchillian you know assessment that uh, you know ultimately we do the right thing after having tried all the wrong things, and um, I think 
you know, it, that, I'm, 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 I'm fairly optimistic in part because when I looked at Biden's trip last week, I didn't see anybody else rushing to take our place. You know, there, there were people who were stepping up in their own way, but, you know, Germany is about to go through a leadership muddle and France certainly isn't going to be there and the UK certainly isn't going to be there. And, those, you know, the BRICS, you know, they're, they're not what we thought they were. The big emerging markets was what we called them in the 90s, and they're not what we thought they were. China's going to continue to rise, but if you if, if you're believe in the democracy versus autocracy argument, there's really only one front runner on the democracy side of the coin. And so I tend to, I tend to think we've got a pretty, um, pretty good shot, although we could blow it. And, and certainly the history of the past six years is things change quickly. Um, anyway, we will continue, obviously, to have these conversations. Uh, I know that the audience um, has benefited from now six years, so it's both you know the undergraduate and graduate education with all of you guys. I know I have you know going to deep state you. It's certainly been a far you know cut above uh, Trump you, and um, uh, I you know I I, I think uh, the fact that you know the, maybe the most amazing fact is six years later of us having this conversation, the audience is bigger than it's ever been, and people keep showing up. And they depend on you guys for your insights. And uh, maybe that's not surprising, but it's certainly gratifying and I'm grateful. Thank you, Deep State Nerds. Thank you. Exactly. Thank you, Deep State Nerds. Your appetite for this remains uh, unquenched and we'll keep trying to um, uh, uh, fill it and uh, including later this week and in future weeks and go to the dsrnetwork.com and uh, you will find information on what we've got coming. You'll also find a membership button. If you've been listening to us for the past four years and you have not become a member, come on, you're a freeloader, you know, step up, pay, pay 30 bucks or 60 bucks or something and help make this uh, continue uh, so that we can continue to have these great conversations. In the meantime, uh, thanks, Corey. Thanks, Rosa. Thanks, David. Thank you, Ed. Uh, thank you, uh, Chris Cotmar, who's been producing these for the past uh, uh, four years. Uh, thank you, Stacey Williams, been you know right there producing them all for the past four years. Um, and we look forward to doing more. Um, and stay healthy, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs>